You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. This week's episode is with my dear friend, Leah Kern. Leah is an anti-diet dietitian, so she's an RD and a certified intuitive eating counselor. So her practice specializes in helping people heal their relationship with food, some any form of disordered eating, and she uses the framework of intuitive eating. So we will definitely dive into a lot of the intricacies in this episode of that, but a little bit more about Leah. She has this awesome Instagram page that I find highly entertaining. I sort of allude to that in the episode. I may or may not stalk her on Instagram, whatever, no shame. And she has a podcast called Shoulders Down, which I absolutely love. So I will link to all of those in the show notes. And here we are for our conversation with intuitive eating gone wrong. What I love about this topic is that, first of all, intuitive eating has become something that's pretty hot. So I'm glad that something like intuitive eating has become popular and it's not only seen by critics who clearly don't have much of an understanding of the nuance of intuitive eating. So I guess we can sort of roll our eyes at somebody who hasn't cracked open the book and feels the need to critique it. But also the dangers of it becoming popular is that diet culture or wellness culture has adopted intuitive eating. And so how do we come at it? People who might want to actually heal our relationship with food and not subscribe to diet culture How do we approach intuitive eating in a way that actually is healing and helpful to us? So noticing different nuances that diet culture sort of grabs onto and hooks you in the exact same way that their marketing has done always. So let's just jump right in. I am so excited to share this one. You guys, here we go. Leah, I'm very excited for this. Thank you so much for joining me. Ah, we finally did it. I'm so excited too. Yay. Yeah. So, I mean, you're talking a bit offline. I sort of wish we recorded that. There's so many tidbits in there, but whatever, fly in the wall, guys. We'll have to have it again. I'm excited about this topic because it's intuitive eating. And I don't think it's out yet, but I'm hoping that this is going to come out after an episode on the basics of intuitive eating, which (laughs) weirdly I didn't do yet. But talking about how intuitive eating becomes, can so easily become another diet. And the idea is that if, you take the principles of intuitive eating in, I guess, a bit of a quote, wrong way, then anything can happen. So maybe first off, before we start talking about what could go quote wrong, let's talk about like the basics of it, what it entails, and then we can sort of branch off of that into, again, like what could go quote wrong. Totally. Yeah. So intuitive eating really came out of the two people, the two dietitians who created the framework were Elise Resch and Evelyn Triboli, who were in private practice for many years, prescribing people diets and meal plans and came to realize like, oh my gosh, this just doesn't work. People keep coming back. They can't keep the weight off. And it's not a problem of them or their willpower, their discipline. It's a problem with the structure of diets and food rules. And so fast forward now, many years later, we have this framework, which is all about rejecting the outside rules, rejecting the diet mentality, and instead learning to tune into your body's innate cues. So hunger cues, fullness cues, but also other cues, like I'm tired, I need alone time, I'm feeling a certain emotion. And so 
that's the basic, really very, very, very basic of intuitive eating. And it came from such a beautiful place of like, there should be no diets, no worlds. We know that doesn't work. But unfortunately, what's happened is the diet culture, diet industry is so powerful and smart ultimately and sneaky. Mm-hmm. And they've come to kind of like jump on the research of intuitive eating and co-opt the terms with that intuitive eating uses to try and sneakily sell another diet essentially. And so like the main ways we see that happening is diet culture says, you know, we take like a psychological approach or something like trying to like, Oh, I love that one. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) or they'll say like, my gosh, the biggest one is intuitive fasting. This came, who was it? What was her name? I forget her name. This woman, Gwyneth, no, not Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow. Was it her? Uh huh. Yeah. She wrote this book, intuitive fasting, which is just like trying to use what's hot right now, which is intuitive eating and co-opting it to something else. And like the term intuitive fasting is just an oxymoron because Mm -hmm. fasting is saying, you know, you can't eat and intuitive is saying like, you know, I can eat when I, according to my body's cues. So it's just a contradiction in itself. And unfortunately, these are only like a few examples, but there are so many examples of how the intuitive eating framework has been co-opted by diet culture and boils my blood. Yeah. Wait, not that I'm trying this. It sounds terrible, but how do you even explain intuitive fasting to mimic intuitive eating principles? I mean, I don't know because I haven't opened that book, (laughs) but the problem is really like they're suggesting fasting within like certain windows and stuff. And then like intuitive eating when you're not fasting. And it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, interesting. Like a combo. Well, that just, you can't have both. (laughs) Yeah. I also think that what gets really tricky is that when people, and this I see so much with people who try to help people who quote, either binge or emotionally eat or emotionally overeat, whatever it is. And I'll get this also so many people are either sending their people or they themselves are requesting to be a guest on the podcast. And anytime I look at their website and I see, oh, we'll help you with your relationship with food and then also lose weight or manage your weight. I'm like, no, we missed the point here. Yeah. I see that a lot too. Yeah. And it's, I mean, this it's so tricky because I think what happens here is that there's a lot of truth to it. That if you use some principles of intuitive eating, it does feel better than a traditional restrictive diet because you are respecting yourself to a certain extent, but then you sort of stop it and add some other rules. This is where it gets like really, really tricky and really, really dicey. Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime you see intuitive eating for weight loss or intuitive eating and weight loss in the same sentence and the same like advertisement website, just run because The issue is that if there is a goal of weight loss, then that is something that will disrupt your ability to listen to your body's cues. And an example of that is like, say you intuitively are craving like chocolate or something, but then like, you're like, oh no, but you know, I want to lose weight and this might make me gain weight. And then you deny yourself the chocolate. Well, now you've ruined the ability to honor your body's natural cue. And that happened because you have this other thing that's interfering, which is, you know, an exterior metric or goal of weight loss. Absolutely. So let's say somebody (laughs) knows that there's like all this marketing stuff and they're using intuitive eating for weight loss and maybe they've tried it. I don't know. What would you say is important to look out for if someone's working on their relationship with food and they do want to make sure that they work on their intuitive eating journey? Totally. So 
the things I share with my clients are essentially what we're like talking about here is like how to spot a diet. And (laughs) the biggest things are anything that is outside of yourself, whether it's a calorie tracking app, a meal plan. So like in the case of Noom, which is a diet company that is one of the most guilty of co-opting the intuitive eating framework by, you know, using this like term psychological approach, they have a color coding system. So it's like red foods mean like, stop, you can't have those. Or yellow mean sometimes, you know, in moderation and green means go. That's like your fruits and vegetables, you're allowed to have those. So it's like, okay, a color coding system, it's still a set of rules outside of yourself that you will be using to govern your eating decisions. Oh, how many red foods have I eaten today? Up too many red foods, need to go to have more yellow and green foods, whatever. And so to your question of how do you spot a diet, really anything that is outside of yourself that you are being told to use to govern your eating decisions is a diet. So I would say that a lot of people are like, yeah, but with intuitive eating, like I'm learning these skills and like someone's giving me these skills. But the difference is that if you're working with someone, a therapist, a dietitian on intuitive eating, they're not giving you anything outside of yourself. They're just giving you tools to help you remove all of the gunk that you glean from society. The, you know, what I eat in a day videos on TikTok, the calorie tracking apps, the meal plans, all of that. Mm-hmm. They're just helping you remove that so you can reconnect with what was already there all along, which is your body's innate wisdom. Yeah. I think this is also some of the questions in the beginning of when I'm working with people who have eating disorders and aren't connected with their body at all, whether that ever happens or not is maybe beyond the scope of this conversation, but they do need to be on a little bit more of a structured meal plan because they sort of aren't following something. And I mean, they aren't getting enough energy. Yeah. And so in the beginning, working with a dietitian with a specific meal plan can also feel outside, but I think what sort of like almost borders on something that feels more problematic. And I don't know, let me know what your thoughts are. Is that there are so many treatment centers that use the exchange system. So like, okay, you can have this many of the carbs and this many of the this and this many of that. And some programs actually measure. I actually don't know if they still do that. I really hope that they don't. But like, how do you sort of consolidate this idea about somebody isn't getting enough nutrition and needs to make sure that they get enough nutrition and presumably in the beginning, it is going to look a lot more structured with that's a set of outside rules. Right. Yeah. This is such a good point. So first of all, I just want to say I'm not an eating disorder specialist. I work with people with disordered relationships with food. So that looks like someone who's struggling with obsessive thoughts about food and body, but isn't necessarily at the level of care where they need to be in an eating disorder facility, inpatient treatment. So from what I do know, yes, you're absolutely right that there's a part in the beginning of eating disorder care where hunger fullness cues aren't reliable because of the severity of the situation. And so it is important at first to get a certain amount of fuel in, and that might look like using a meal plan. But the thing is that it's it's temporary. It's not, it's not meant for long-term and it's also not meant for weight loss. Mm. There's not that goal. Okay, It's meant for like weight restoration. And mm-hmm. with the goal of the meal plan sort of helping the person restore their body's natural cues and just get them on their feet. So you can think of it almost like kind of like a crutch or a cane to help them get to a place where they can access their body's cues. It's temporary. So I would say that that's like the only exception, really that case. And it looks very different than with the intention being for weight loss. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I love the temporary piece because that also is when there are some people that fall on the slippery slope of it feels so much less chaotic to follow a plan, whether it's for weight loss or for weight restoration or just to stabilize their relationship with food. I don't know if you get this question. I'm sure you do people just sort of like looking for some help, even if they've sort of resigned to, I'm not going to lose weight, but just tell me what to do because that eliminates the, let me listen to my body. Let me figure it out for myself. And so if somebody starts off with that crutch, we have to make sure that we slowly wean them off. Exactly. And that it doesn't become this thing where they're continuing to look for somebody outside of them to provide the answers. Right. Exactly. The goal is that that helps them understand their body's wisdom and then they can fly on their own because really like that is accessible at a certain point in recovery. And yeah, I think the piece about it being temporary is a really important distinction because it's not, they're not meant to be tethered to it forever. They're meant to just use it until they can be in a place where they can trust their body's cues. Yeah. So something I wanted to ask you about, I think you had mentioned that you sort of do like something different for your program in terms of gentle nutrition. Mm -hmm. And I think this is also where many people get stuck. So there's intuitive eating, there are 10 principles. And then at the end, there's like, oh, by the way, gentle nutrition. And then it feels so, I don't even know what the word is, but how do you approach nutrition if your entire life nutrition was basically diets and not all diets are full of untruths, like I'm sure some of them are rooted in some science, meaning the actual accurate science. And, you know, the nutrition piece is like, okay, so how do you incorporate that into intuitive eating again, to make sure that it doesn't become a diet? Yeah. It's such a great question. And the first thing I'll say is I am very careful about when I start introducing gentle nutrition to my clients. I really want to see crystal clear that they've been able to reject the diet mentality, to get the mindset pieces down around rewiring their old thoughts about, about food in their body. I really, really want to see clearly that they are in a solid place with the other principles of intuitive eating so that when I introduce gentle nutrition, it doesn't become a situation where they're co-opting the nutrition science into a diet. So that's the first thing and a benefit of working with a professional because you know if you're reading the book or kind of taking yourself through it on your own, you do run the risk of kind of getting to that part too quickly and ending up co-opting the nutrition science into a diet. So that's the first thing. The second thing I love to say is that it's nutrition from a place of self-care, not self-control. So it's eating for the way that you want to feel in your body versus eating for the way that you're trying to look in your body. Mm. So diet culture says low calorie, you know, low fat, whatever the thing of the moment is mm -hmm. to sculpt, burn, tone, whatever word they're using. Whereas intuitive eating says, what would feel good? What would satisfy you? What would give you sustained energy levels? What would work given what you have going on in the day? And so that's a really, really big shift. And then the other thing I love to talk about is this dietitian named Rachel Hartley. Are you familiar with her? Mm -mm. I'm going to go check her out right after this. Yeah, she's awesome. <laughs> she wrote this book, Gentle Nutrition. <laughs> you know, without a book, like, of course, it's right next to you. <laughs> There's like, I mean, I'm always like using this. So she wrote this book, Gentle Nutrition. I think it's only like a year old. It's very new. And it's a whole book on the last principle. But in the beginning, she kind of goes through the other principles like 
kind of quickly just to get someone up to speed if they were to just pick up the book. But something that she talks about in this book that I absolutely love and I use with all my clients is this nutrition hierarchy. And so Hmm. you can picture like the food pyramid that you maybe saw in elementary school, you know, the one that was like, bread, fish, dairy. And then like at the top, there was that tiny, tiny little triangle of sweets. And you're like, well, shit, I feel like I can't have sweets now. So just another example of like the low key, like shame and like guilt that was introduced from a young age. Mm -hmm. So it's this pyramid, but the way it looks is on the bottom is, so the pyramid is about it more like closely mirrors like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but it's specifically about nutrition needs. So the bottom thing, the most important first consideration with nutrition she talks about is, is adequacy. So like, it doesn't matter how much kale and quinoa you're having. If you're not having enough food, your body will not be able to reap the benefits from the like more nutrient dense foods because it will just be under stress. So it doesn't matter if it's McDonald's, it doesn't matter what it is. If you, you need to be having enough food, you need to be getting your energetic needs met throughout the day Mm -hmm. consistently. So meaning like wherever it comes from, it just has to be enough. Exactly. That's the first consideration. That's the most important consideration. And so after that, the next thing we're looking at is, okay, you have enough food. So like, by the way, with the adequacy, we're thinking about folks who like maybe are, don't have access to a lot of food or socioeconomic status is limiting them in a way. So this is where it becomes so important to have perspective with nutrition, because if we're saying you need to have organic, only produce, fresh produce, then we're missing a large chunk of the population of people who, if they were to buy, spend all their money on those things, they wouldn't have adequacy because those things are expensive. So after adequacy, once we're sure, okay, you're having enough food, the next consideration is balance. And this is not diet culture balance, which is like balance out, you know, a hamburger with a salad. No, it's balance, (laughs) meaning a balance of the macronutrients. So carbs, protein, fat, and fiber isn't technically considered a macronutrient, but we sometimes kind of, it's kind of like A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y, like with the vowels. Oh, interesting. Okay. So one second. So macros are carb, fat, protein. Yes. Sometimes fiber. The reason fiber isn't like officially considered one is because you can't directly reap energy from fiber. It, It passes through your digestive system undigested and then it like ferments in the colon. And that's how you get sort of like secondhand. You get, you can get energy from it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Cool. I'm just thinking about all the diets that are like, make sure you have more fiber and fiber cancels out carbs and do your calculation and all that. Like, no, I don't have time for that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So once you are having enough food, we're thinking about, okay, now let's think about the balance of the macronutrients, carbs, protein, fat. They're all important. Spoiler alert, carbs aren't bad. You, You need all of them. Our bodies work best when we have them all in combination. They all serve a different purpose and we need all of them. So after balance, the next sort of rung up on the pyramid is variety. So she calls variety. She, I love this. In the book, she refers to it as your nutrition insurance policy. And the idea is that like there are so many micronutrients or so many vitamins and minerals like copper, zinc, selenium, iron, all, all the things that if you want to make sure that like all your bases are covered and you're getting all your micronutrients in and vitamins, well, the best thing to do is really have a variety of foods because all foods have different combinations of the micronutrients and the vitamins and minerals, all the things. So little things like, you know, switching up the brand of 
bread that you buy or having different. Mm. And the funny thing is diet culture is so anti-variety. They're like, here's your meal plan. You're having this every single day. Don't stray. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's just such a concrete example of how you can end up with big gaps, you know, over time, if you really have the same, whatever they say, like bland chicken and broccoli and whatever they prescribe you, but you can end up with big gaps in in your diet because we need all different kinds of foods to, to get our nutrient requirements met. So here's another like potential pitfall. If somebody is sort of prescribing a diet that they're saying, well, the old diets of like boiled chicken are disgusting. And like, that's totally not my thing. And I'm going to tell you that you can have variety, but like all different types of fruits and vegetables. And this is like nature's variety and nature's candy, whatever you want to use. To a certain extent, like there are so many different types of fruits and vegetables. And especially if you walk through the farmer's market, there's probably something that you've never seen before. But if it's just variety with fruits and vegetables, then I guess what this is saying is like, you kind of miss the point. Right. We'll go back to the rung. Well, then you miss balance because are you having carbs? Are you having protein? Are you having fat? We see you're having fiber. You're having a ton of fiber from, you know, your fruits and vegetables. But again, if you don't have the, the, each step on the rung taken care of, then your body won't be able to reap the benefits of all of those fruits and vegetables because it won't have its needs adequately met of fat and, you know, protein. And, and those things serve other purposes in the body that fiber can't serve or that the fruits and vegetables can't serve. Yeah. I'm actually remembering, I think it was like either a reel or something that you did about like that you were craving. Maybe I'm getting this wrong, but like it was like a sweet potato and you wanted to put like maybe butter on top and how the combo actually helps absorption even more. So like having plain, you know, let's say like a plain carrot is actually not necessarily as helpful as having a carrot with hummus or something like that. Exactly. That's That was my reel. Yeah. Because... <laughs> I don't stalk you at all, whatever. (laughs) I love it. Well, there's vitamin, there's four fat soluble vitamins, vitamin A, D, E, and K. And what that means is they need fat to be properly absorbed. So Mm -hmm. fat from hummus or from butter can help the absorption of vitamin A, which is in carrots and, and sweet potatoes. So yes, exactly such an amazing example of these things work better in combination. Yeah. So if we're going up the rung, okay, bottom rung, adequacy, are you having enough food? Then balance, are you having a mix of the macronutrients? Then variety, are you having different kinds of food? Are you mixing things up? And the very, very, very last consideration on the rung is the thing that we often hear most about in the media, but that actually matters the least in the grand scheme of things, which is specific foods or individual foods, it's called. So this is like when you see those articles that are like five foods to blast belly fat or like three foods to clear your acne or cure your anxiety or whatever it is. Yeah, superfoods. Exactly. And these foods are absolutely glorified as like they can have all of these magical powers and do amazing things for you. And the truth is like, yes, certain foods can have certain benefits. Like fermented foods can be good for your gut health. Foods with whole grains can be good to lower your cholesterol. And so like we know these things, yes, but without the bottom of those rungs fulfilled, without adequacy, balance, and variety, that one food, it's not going to do shit for you because your your body won't, won't be able to reap the benefits from it because it, it won't be functioning optimally because you won't have its other needs met. Mm-hmm. So you're saying having chia seed pudding every single day is probably not going to be that helpful. I mean, it depends on the greater context of your diet, but if you're having chia seed puddings with like, with the hope of like, I read this article that chia seeds do all these magical things for me. I would say 
be aware that the media often way overblows and distorts the actual effect that a food can have. There is no such thing as a magic bullet. Food cannot, you know, Mm -hmm. do these things often that we're like hearing that they can do on, uh, you know, these articles. Yeah. And it's so interesting because the more I learn about marketing stuff, like SEO and email subject lines, the more I realize that what the headlines have showed us or what they try to title their article is cookbait. They want to have like an odd number so that it shows up on Google. They want to have a list. They want to have like all those promises so that you'll click on it. And who cares if it's true? They just want your clicks. Exactly. Oh yeah. Because it makes for a super juicy BuzzFeed article to be like, five foods that will absolutely make you beautiful. <laughs> As opposed to like something that might be helpful or might not be helpful to incorporate into your diet. <laughs> no one's reading that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Depending on the greater context of what else you have going on. And like, oh yeah, we haven't even talked about like stress and like oh my God, yeah. other factors like social determinants of health that are realistically making up more of our health than food and exercise, like things like your environment, your stress levels, your socioeconomic status, your access to different space, like, you know, outdoor space, Mm -hmm. all of these things affects your health. And yeah, does food affect your health? Realistically, it's a small piece of the pie. And again, it's, it's something that diet culture can sell you on if they convince you that you have control over what you eat and you have control over what you buy. So like this can really impact your your health. They want you to have this belief that it has more of an impact than it does because it's profitable for them. Yeah. Something what you said about stress just sort of like triggered this in my mind, how, you know, especially going along the lines of how people can take an intuitive eating and do it their way, that the stress piece that can be like, oh, therapy is amazing. And there are therapists out there that again, treat disordered eating, treat binge eating, whatever you want to call it. And they talk about how using DBT or not even any sort of specific therapy, but just being in therapy and helping relieve stress and and all those things and, and work on your emotional health and how food is connected with emotions, really targeting that piece, again, could be very helpful. But if you're only focusing on that and then saying, okay, well then sort of manage your intake in this other way is exactly what we're talking about here. You took some pieces and then the other pieces are straight up diet. Yeah, exactly. And it just sort of like cancels out like the benefits of the other pieces, not always, but oftentimes because a framework I think is really meant to be used as a framework and intuitive eating is a framework. There's, There's 10 principles. And like you said, could you get benefits from just using some of the principles? Sure. But like, it really is like this synergy with each principle that combines to create like the power that is intuitive eating. Yeah. And I think I'm sure you have this experience also, even personally, when you hang out with people who are either on their journey or sort of have stopped their journey halfway in terms of the intuitive eating, and they're not necessarily following a diet, but it's like, okay, I got the benefit. I don't feel as anxious anymore, but I'm always going to choose the safer option when we go out to eat, or I'm always going to work out these different like little pieces. When you talk to someone, you can tell where their mind is at. And that again, it is helpful. So maybe their anxiety is brought down a little bit and they're less stressed about their relationship with food, but they're still like really chained to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the pseudo recovery and yeah. It's, I see that a lot. I see a lot. I work with a lot of clients who like recovered and like kind of air quotes, but like as far as the doctors were concerned, they like became stable from, from their eating disorder. Yeah. 
but then they're like surviving, but they're not like thriving. Like their, their life is fine, but they're not feeling free and able to enjoy pleasure and, and be present at social events with food. Like all of these like pieces that like, like the, it's like the juicy pieces, they're not there yet. So I feel like a lot of my niche is like really taking someone from like surviving to thriving. Yeah. I love that. It's so interesting because in a way I sort of parallel that in the therapy world, because yes, you can take all of the things that you can do based on like different behavioral techniques and any sort of coping mechanisms that you add to your toolbox. That's wonderful. And I'm obviously not anti that, but that allows you to sort of get yourself out of the hole and to stability, which of course is so much better than being in pain all the time. But then what? Does that sort of end and you just are stable? Like, that's it? That's like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. That doesn't sound good enough to me. And so really understanding the intricacies of your emotional well-being and the roots and where does this come from? And why do I think this way? And why do I behave this way? And changing that actually takes you to thriving. Yeah. So I love that. Just briefly pivoting, because I'm curious what you have to say about movement. This comes up also about movement and people who talk about, I don't want to work out to lose weight, but just like to stay strong and I'm proud of my body. How do you look at exercise or movement through an intuitive eating framework to make sure that again, it's like either intuitive or at least on the journey as opposed to very diety? Yeah, totally. So much comes down to intention. Mm -hmm. If your intention with moving your body is to manipulate the size or shape of your body, that is movement that is not aligned with intuitive eating. Because again, intuitive eating is totally releasing the idea of manipulating the size or shape of your body in any form. So words like tone or you know, burn, sculpt are not aligned with intuitive eating. Movement from an intuitive eating lens, there's so many different intentions one could have behind why they choose to move their body but none of these have to do with manipulating the size or shape of their body. So for example, to decrease anxiety, to boost mood or to enhance creativity, to get better sleep, to enjoy the fresh air, to, yeah, to get stronger because getting stronger is different than getting toned. A person could be stronger without having any physical sign. Like maybe their way their genetics are, like they just you know, you're never gonna have a six pack or, you know, visible biceps or whatever, but if the intention is to feel stronger so that maybe you can more easily carry groceries or play with your children or whatever it is, or just for yourself, there's so many different reasons why exercise can happen that have nothing to do with manipulating the size or shape of your body. And what I see often with clients is when we start this work, they're sort of like holding both. They're like, well, yeah, it's because it's helping my sleep and helping my anxiety and my creativity. Mm-hmm. But also I low-key hope that I burn calories so that I, you know, I lose weight. And that's okay. And that's normal. I think the expectation that like you become an intuitive eater and just like actually never care about the size or shape of your body <laughs> is very unrealistic. Yeah. But the goal is that like over time, it becomes like a cycle that fuels, fuels itself or like, exercise just genuinely feels good. So you just genuinely want to do it independent of whether or not you see changes in your body. And slowly, 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 the desires to see changes in the size or shape of your body will slip away if you continue along the intuitive eating path. Yeah. I think that's the key that this is not an overnight process. And anybody who sells it to you that way, obviously is trying to sell a diet, but that this sometimes takes you know decades, depending on how you go 
about this journey and that's totally okay. Like it's going to take time, especially if you've been dieting for your entire life. Yeah. Yeah. And an important thing on the topic of movement is it's really normal to not feel called to move in the beginning of this work because if you're a person coming from a history of chronic dieting, you're probably also coming in from a history of using exercise as a punishment to earn calories, you know, to repent for something that you ate or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So punishment doesn't feel good. Like if you think about the brain, it's like naturally wired to seek pleasure and avoid pain, like just as like animal creatures. And so if you think of like exercise being framed as a punishment, well, that's pain. That's very painful. Whereas if exercise is framed more as like a celebration for what your body could do, that's pleasure. That feels good. That's pleasurable. And you you will naturally gravitate towards it. But I think it could take time and space to like not touch exercise and like the formal way that we we view exercise. If you're a person whose relationship with exercise has been so burned by diet culture, you might just need to give yourself time and space to kind of heal those wounds with the trust that you will eventually crave movement genuinely and naturally find yourself back there. But I really, really encourage my clients, don't push it. Like if you don't like want to exercise, it's okay. Nothing's going to happen to you. You're going to be okay. It's more important that we kind of have this deep healing take place. Yeah. Just a note on what you said before, like the strong, because I think that it gets so tricky with people. And I think it also mainly has to do with being honest with yourself. And if you're saying this to me, that doesn't really matter, but what does it actually mean to you? So the strength piece of it, it makes sense if you'd want to get stronger to drag your groceries or, I mean, like, I don't know, we live in the city. So if you go to Trader Joe's and have to take the subway home, like you have to be strong in order to get your groceries home. Or if you have like kids and you want to hold them, then totally makes sense. And not everything needs to have a very specific reason. But I think with the strong piece, we have to be very honest with ourselves. Like what is, what does being strong actually mean to you? And is it just another form of my body can do this and focused on my body in terms of like, not necessarily diet or weight loss, but just the focus on the body. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And I just think about too, if someone's listening to this and they're like, well, what's so bad with wanting to be toned? Like, why is that such a crime? (laughs) And yeah, the truth is that if you are eating and exercising with the intention of like how you want it to manipulate the size or shape of your body, you are probably going to be disappointed because eating and exercise doesn't have such a big impact on the, you know, so much of the way our bodies look is actually to do with, has to do with genetics and, and, you know, our predisposed genetic blueprint for like where, how, how our fat is distributed and how our hips are set and all these things that just like are beyond what we can actually change. And just the recognition that we've been fed the propaganda that all of this can be changed with a simple diet and exercise regimen, but that's not really true. Like it doesn't really matter how hard you try to get a six pack. It's not, it's not a matter of your willpower or discipline at the end of the day, that probably has a lot more to do with DNA genetic blueprint. Yeah. Which is not meant to uh, depress anyone, but just sort of understand the the piece of nutrition in one's life. Yeah. And it might be depressing. Like there's a lot of grief work in in the intuitive eating work of like mm, that's true. You know, grieving the loss of this like ideal body that was promised to you for all of these years and really coming to terms with like that's not what's within the realm of possibilities for me for my genetic blueprint. 
if I, and you know, some people might say, well, like I've been at that, you know, I've looked like that before. And the question is like, okay, you know, at what cost? Yeah. What was your mental health? Like, were you present? Were you feeling energized? Were you able to engage without constantly thinking about food? And that just becomes something you have to weigh of like, what's actually important to you for, for the long term. Yeah. I once had a client who said, it's worth it for me to be, I don't remember exactly how many pounds she inserted in, it's irrelevant more than when I'm sick because now I can have ice cream with my daughter and, you know, have dinner with my daughter, which I mean, is so profound because you might look better in your opinion, but again, at what cost? Yeah. Yeah. And also like the question of like, who told you that smaller was better? Like, where did that idea come from? Like starting just like question all these things of like, right. <laughs> yeah. what if you were sold that idea because of like capitalistic, you know, motives? And like, what if like the way you look is actually fine? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I love to say that, that there's, don't take anything for granted. Always ask why. I mean, you can come to the same conclusion if you want, but only ask after you've asked yourself. So don't take anything for granted which is important to continue to be curious and ask yourself questions. I love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. I had so much fun and I can obviously talk to you for hours, but before I let you go, where can our listeners find you? Yes. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. So my Instagram is Leah, L-E-A-H, Kern, K-E-R-N dot R-D. I have a website, leahkernrd.com. All the things are on there and yeah, information about coaching and other free resources and stuff can be found on my website. And your podcast. Oh my gosh. I totally forgot. (laughs) My (laughs) podcast is yes. Oh my gosh. Shoulders down podcast on iTunes, Spotify, all the things. And we talk so much more in depth about like everything we just covered today, like has like its own episode or will have its own episode because as me and, and Rahel are uncovering, there's literally so much nuance with intuitive eating. So definitely check that out. Yeah. I'll link to all those in the show notes. And then also you can send me a link to the gentle nutrition book. Cause I think a lot of people will be interested in reading that. We'll link to that also in the show notes. Oh yes, for sure. Beautiful. Awesome. All right. I'll talk to you later. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.